on. Let me, let me add on down. Oh, you're on video. I sure am. Oh, man. Oh, Skype. <laughs> All right, here we go. Hello. Hey. Hey. Hey, Michelle. Um, so I, this. you do not need your video. You're totally good. We're we're a full out audio only uh, format podcast. Although when I just added uh, Don started the call for Don, he also had his video on. So um, so maybe maybe we're doing a video podcast now. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, we can we can see you have a you have a very professional looking podcaster microphone. Yes, that's, uh, that's very. Impressive. Oh, thank you. This is new. Uh, we like. You know, I, I've been at APHL for 11 years and we never have money for communications. And then this year <laughs> we get money. So we're like buying all the things because we know that once this pandemic is over, there will be no more money. Right, right. Do it now. So, so yeah. one, one thing one thing about the show is like we start it from the beginning. So if you if you want, we're recording this. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to start over and not talk about <laughs> money stuff, we'll, we can do that. But yeah. generally, we have a saying: uh, "What's in the show is in the show." So that it makes your life a lot easier. Yeah, <laughs> it does. We 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 like edit. Thank you for telling me that now after we started recording. By the way, no, that's okay. We we could. Uh, <laughs> I think we just broke like three laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. We. Uh, well, our our uh, podcast editing format is uh, minimal. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> and so, and and you know, the some 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 listeners uh, like that, some don't. But uh, that's that's how we roll. Um, but but we uh, we we've kind of jumped in in things now. We have we have a guest, so probably it's best, uh, Don, for us to introduce our our guest, Michelle Foreman, uh, who's joined us today. Um, that's as, about as formal as it gets, Michelle, uh, right there. I, I'm into that. That's my level. <laughs> well, and as we, as I think I explained in, in Twitter DMs, like, why don't you, why don't, Michelle, why don't you just tell us a, a little bit about us? Well, tell us, and <laughs> tell we us. know about you, but tell us <laughs> and our listeners a little bit about you. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. So first of all, thank you, um, for, for having me, for inviting me, um, so I'm Michelle Foreman. I'm the manager of media for the Association of Public Health Laboratories. Um, so I, I handle all of our um, public facing communication, our media relations, blog, podcast, social media, all of that fun stuff. Um, and APHL is an association that represents public health, uh, environmental, agricultural, local, state, territorial laboratories. Um, so I'm not a scientist, but, um, you know, but like I know a lot of scientists and my job is kind of <laughs> yeah, for good. them. Yeah. yeah. Right. To those scientists who I know, like I've got a guy and, you know, like they help me to understand this really complicated, um, and oftentimes disgusting kinds of, uh, <laughs> public health science. And then my job is to help others to understand and make it compelling. Um, and then on top of it, uh, I, uh, I have two kids. I love to cook. And so food safety is sort of where my personal and my professional sort of come together. Oh, nice. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I, it has, uh, it's been fun to learn. It's been really fun to gross out my friends and family with my, my information. 
that's awesome. <laughs> well, that that's what we're that's what we're all about too. Uh, we so <laughs> we um you know uh, we do we do this podcast, Food Safety Talk, and and Don and I also do another podcast called Risky or Not, where we try to take sort of one topic and and distill it down into yeah really the question that that he and I get asked all the time which is okay great there's a lot of science around this sure it's complicated it depends all that is great but also (laughs) is like can I eat it or can I not eat it you know yeah right is this risky, right? Like yeah. stop, stop dithering, stop equivocating, right? Like just give me a straight up answer, right? Is this, is this, I do this thing. I, well, a lot of times it's people saying, well, I already do this thing and they're looking for permission yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to keep doing it. Or, or it's like, well, I did this thing and I have this food now and I'm pretty sure I shouldn't eat it, but I'm also I'm kind of looking for your permission to not eat it and help me like convince me that I should throw it out. And so, yeah, it's uh, anyway, it's it's been yeah, it's been I, a lot of fun. It has been a uh, it it has been very helpful for for me. I have come to you guys on Twitter many times for things. Um, I, I think most recently, can I can I leave this giant pot of soup out on my stovetop? <laughs> yes. Uh, because I don't have any more room in my refrigerator and what do I do with it? And I got a very solid, do not do that. Um, and I never would have guessed. So well, thank you. Yeah. No, no. But, but on the other hand, yeah. um, I think we, Michelle, we have established uh, that you and I are uh, perhaps on opposite sides on the uh, closing the toilet seat uh, when you flush uh, camp. Uh, as we recent, this was the whole reason oh, no. for you ending up on the podcast. I think I yeah. didn't realize I, this was going to be a battle. Well, no, it's it, this is not uh, it's not a rap battle. We're here. gonna have to like there's, fight this out. Yeah, there's no no, it's okay. It's yeah. fine. You you can you know I I you know I keep uh, I keep telling people like well that's that's a question for a different podcast like like um, what. <laughs> Uh, like easy, easy things to do that lower your risk and make things less disgusting. Like that's a like that podcast is out there for you to do, Michelle. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I could get a workshop the title. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. I would listen so. to that. I would totally like. Yeah, I would subscribe to that. It, yeah. All right. There's one. There's yeah. one listener. <laughs> well, and that, that's and how it starts. Exactly. That's one of the things that we that we you know talk about quite a bit with Don and I. We try to like really hold ourselves to. And, and, and you know, for for listeners of this show and 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 the other show, probably um, repetitively, kind of hold ourselves to like, no, no, that's a different show. It's not. Is this riskier or is it gross? It's like, all right, we've got a we we have to, we we've set a line of threshold that that we think this is risky or not, and we've got to be on one side or the other of that. And what's kind of fun and and I, you know, it, it really leads into to what I think, Michelle, you you do in your role at APHL is scientists don't always agree. Like in our best shows. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my, welcome to my world. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's the, like for, for me, that's my favorite show, right? Like it's, it's a boring show of Don and I are like, Oh yeah, we have the exact same answer. We see this uh, totally the same. Um, don't do it. Do do it. Risky, not risky. What, you know, whatever. Um, but the, the more fun ones are when we, we take more circular approaches to the same question. 
and and we've come into it with our own biases in a in a different um conflicting way and that's my like that's my favorite th- those are my favorite ones and i'm sure like i mean i'm i'm sure that you're dealing with that all the time in your in your role where where you've got you know at, at APHL you, you're you're really representing a whole bunch of you know independent laboratories that are all focused on public health with all super smart scientists that that are are driving um driving work and interpreting results and and sometimes they they're not arriving and I would say often probably not arriving at exactly the same same answer and you're and and again th- tell me if I'm totally wrong but you're kind of stuck in the middle sometimes of trying to like be the referee in that situation to 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 to, to try to communicate what's you know w- what's happening in in a way that is um uh accessible for for the for a public audience yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, uh, it's one of the things that I really like about my role because, uh, you know, sitting at a table with scientists on any number of the topics that we work on, um, they can debate all day long about the nuance of the science and what it tells us and what it doesn't. But at the end of the day, what I need is to, um, you know, help get stuff done. Yeah, (laughs) I need to to get stuff done. I need to understand. I didn't do that well in high school science. Like that, like let's keep this at my level. Um, and let's help people, you know, be able to make risk assessments on their own because ultimately that's what they're doing. You know, like, uh, this is why, you know, eating raw cookie dough is risky. This is your, these are the things that present the risk this is the science to back up that risk. Uh, n- now you need to be able to make a choice for yourself about whether you're prepared to accept that risk. Um, and we all make those kinds of risk assessments in everything we do in a day. And so the science sort of backs that up. You know, if we, um, I mean, that's my, that's my ultimate goal to help, to help people have the information that they need to be able to make those risk assessments. And sometimes we need to convey that um, something is just too risky for, for someone to be able to make uh, an, a different choice. You know, you, you, you really should not, um, you know, give raw milk to your infant. Um, that is not a, a risk assessment that we recommend right. considering beyond that. Right, right, right. One, for example, yeah, yeah, and and those are, you know, one one of the I think common threads of what what Don and I have have talked about, and and how I've, and you know, uh, Don can give his perspective on this, but but how I've kind of grown as a not not just as a scientist, but as a, as someone who does you know science communication, um, in a in, in a public forum through you know through this podcast and through media and through Twitter and and such is. We, I think we're often Don and I often are able to say, "Hey, that's a risk management decision, right? Like, like that that you as a person make your own risk management decision. You as a company um, make your own risk management decision. As a regulator, that's a risk management decision. What we're what we try to do is um, evaluate what the data, what the available data says, try to make inferences based because almost every one of our questions and the stuff, even stuff that we want to talk about today, um, is 
there's no like perfect study. There's no definitive. This experiment was set up to answer this question. Almost, almost, at, almost never. Um, and and so what what I think we we're often trying to do is take the data that's available, take our experience, lay it out there, just like just like you said, Michelle, and and say, okay, now you make your decision. Here's the information that we think is important. And, but it's, it's maybe not all the information we all have, we, we all have different value judgments to make on this. And, and we're, we very often shy away from being risk managers in, in this case, cause that's not, you know, not really our, our role in, in our, in our jobs. Um, sure. Yeah. As, uh, you know, in, in what we do in extension and, and as, as researchers, there are certainly times where both of us are, um, you know, we'll, we'll give our, give our opinions and are, and are called on upon. And, and that's where like, I'll, I'll just to give you like a, a little bit of background. I started in extension, uh, almost 12 years, almost 13 years ago, I guess. And, um, when, so, so what, what I do, um, is support, um, extension educators and extension agents that exist throughout the state of North Carolina in local communities. And so there are NC state and NC ANT employees. The, there's a whole like history of land grant institutions and taking science um, to the people from an agricultural and food standpoint to, for lots of different reasons. But one of, one of my um, sort of daily roles is to, to support agents who, who have, um, you know, sometimes degrees in other things that aren't science that are uh, they're often we, we provide a lot of um, ongoing training and professional development uh, uh, to them. But but, you know, one one, I guess, change that that I really thought about a lot was to try to explain risk to extension agents so they can be the experts in in food safety risk, not the expert in should I don't do this or do this because right. yeah, like one of, one of the things that I, I think is really, um, I think is really key from a behavior standpoint. If we want people to do stuff that, that we have to give them the why. And then like you said, Michelle, give them the space to make that decision, right? Like here's all the information you've got to make a risk management uh, decision, but that's not like, you know, that, that I, I think that's a relatively new approach to science communication and especially food communication. And I'd say relatively new. It's, it's probably in the last, you know, 15 years or, or 20 years that we've really approached it in, in that way from a risk communication standpoint. Sorry to ramble. Yeah. You're, yeah. yeah. No, no. I, I think it's, you're, you're, you, you make a really good point, Ben. And I'm so this is part of the reason why I like doing this show and I like doing risky or not so much. So let me give you so so Ben's been doing this for for you know 12 or 13 years. I've been at it for more than 30. And it used to be when somebody asked me a question, I would, you know, I mean, well, I mean, I guess there sort of was the beginnings of the internet, but you would go to some official source. You would go to what has now become Fight Back, the Partnership for Food Safety, or you would go to foodsafety.gov, or more likely 30 years ago, you would go to um, some print material 
and you would look up what is the the appropriate cooking temperature for for poultry, right? Or you would look up what the what, how long you can keep uh, open um, uh, an open container uh, package of cheese in your refrigerator. You would go to these these official sources. But then, and so as, as when doing my extension job, that's what I would do. I would go and I would look stuff up for people because I knew the the places to go to look stuff up. But then at the same time, we're starting a research program and looking at basically developing computer models that describe the behavior of foodborne pathogens and to say, okay, like this is how much salmonella will grow in poultry under these conditions. And I began to have like this weird thing in my head where it's like, well, okay, like the models are giving me Mm. one answer and the official sources are giving me another. Let me, let me figure this out. Why are these, you know, and, and then, and then of course, then I learned about risk assessment and I learned the difference between risk assessment and risk management. And it became very clear to me that all of those official sources that were giving those bright lines, those times and those temperatures, those were risk management decisions that were being made by those individuals to say, okay, this is, you know, and and it was, and not just for advice for consumers, but advice for for food companies as well, like the USDA FSIS Appendix A for cooking and Appendix B for cooling of meat products. And it's like, okay, there's assumptions, there's implicit assumptions about risk that are built into all of these risk management documents. And it suddenly, it suddenly like the light bulb went off and it wasn't, it wasn't like all of a sudden the light bulb went off, but it was like a, the, the light bulb gradually got brighter and brighter. And I realized, <laughs> well, wait, so I'm, over here, I'm doing risk assessment things. And then in my extension job, I'm doing risk management yeah. things. And I can, yes, of course I can look stuff up and I can quote the official sources. And, and honestly, because the, the internet has, has, happened and people can get access to stuff, I actually get a lot less extension questions because people are looking stuff up for themselves, right? Or they found those resources. And so then the question becomes, well, what do I do for that? Well, now now I can actually, that frees me up to do a lot more interesting things in terms of the extension stuff that I do because I can do a podcast and I, and we can we can dither and we can equivocate on this and we can talk, we can get into the weeds. For the people people that want to know the answer of how long you can keep X, well, go, go to, you know, to, to the USD a uh, food keeper website or download the app and then that's your that's your official answer right but if you want to hear me opine about why that might be right or wrong or what you have to consider as you address that question well then then the podcast is for you or or you know or 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 something else right like but 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 it's been it's it's made it's made my work a lot more interesting because we have these these great tools and it turns out you know things are pretty complicated and sometimes people want to hear about that I've been talking for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And we, uh, so, yeah, so one, I guess one thing, um, Michelle, we kind of alluded to this, um, but how, you know, where, where, why, why you're here today and how this kind of came on our radar um, is, you know, sort of this, this conversation about, oh, um, M- Michelle's having some, some mic problems. Uh, so I, it, it how how Michelle kind of joined us today is is this sort of issue around you know toilet plumes and flushing with the toilet seat open, and you know so so there we'll we'll link to a a, a Twitter thread from a few weeks ago um, in this and and I think it's like I I think Michelle you you hit on something that is like kind of it, it it's kind of fun for for Don and I to talk about um 
So, so this is like one of those, one of those situations where, and, and exactly why, um, when, when we were exchanging tweets, um, I was like, oh, we gotta, you know, we, we've got to get you on to, to sort of talk, talk about this and, and talk through this. Cause I think this is a really like in, I don't know. It, it, first of all, I love toilet plume as, as a concept. <laughs> like it's, I have a visual of it all the time. It's something that Don and I, um, have, have talked about quite a bit. It's one of those like questions. I actually remember we, we did a, um, every back, back when people used to travel, uh, we used to do a, you know, a live show every once in a while. And, and mm. I remember sitting on a stage, um, in, I think it was in, um, in Geneseo. Yeah. Right? Geneseo. Yeah. yeah. New York. Um, and talking about toilet plume for like 30 minutes with a bunch of undergraduate students. Um, and, and so, so anyway, this, you know, it, it, it came to us, Don, um, I'll, I'll sort of read through the thread to sort of set this up. Um, Don, someone you follow Don or something that came on your radar, uh, is a, a tweet from Michael DL, Dr. Michael DL Johnson, who said, as a microbiologist, I'm just letting you know, you should always flush with the toilet seat closed. Don, uh, quote tweets, this flushing with the toilet seat open, risky or not tags me and the Michelle you, you respond. And which is a, like a perfect you know intro, even if the risk is low and I'd guess variables like bathroom size, proximity to sink, et cetera, matter. Why not close it? It's such an easy solution literally couldn't be more simple um and it's and, true yes it's it's one it's <laughs> 100 podcast title literally that's it literally could not be, be more simple. yeah yeah and and it's right like the and there's the like that that's kind of what i was getting at with the risk management decision right like what's the cost to me as a toilet user of closing the um, the lid on the toilet, it, it's zero, right? It doesn't take any time. It's one extra move. Well, it's not exact. It's not, it's very close. To very zero. close to zero. Fair enough. It takes for the it takes math a, some guy. Small amount of time and energy. Yes, right? it takes. But that's true. But but in that, like in one move, I can stand up from the toilet. I can close it, close that lid, you know, lid down. It's it's a very yeah, it's a very small cost. It is very it is very simple um, to do. I live in a house with two uh, <laughs> two boys uh, and and a and, and a good kind of grown woman. Uh, it sounds like we have root, we're all roommates, uh, but it's it's my family. Uh, but I have a ten year old and a twelve year old who who have trouble. I mean, lifting the seat while urinating, cl- <laughs> like uh, flushing the toilet for them. This is there's there's some cost that they are skipping out because they have to get back to Fortnite or whatever it is that that they're doing. Uh, but but it is like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you, Michelle. It's, it's a very it's a very simple task. What you know, what what I think kind of struck us as we've talked about toilet plume is, well, what? It's it's easy and it's re- it, it certainly can reduce uh, reduce a very low risk even lower. But what, you know, one of the things that Don and I like to dither about is well, how low is that risk or how high is that risk in the first place? And and that's the I think that's the fun of you know of what we get to do in 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 science. So well, and yeah, I, I would say too like so there's there's four of us in this house, uh, two of them, two of us, um, uh, pee and poop outside cause they're dogs. But, but I would say the bigger, the bigger question, the more important question for me is not the lid. It's the seat, right? Because if, if, if somebody in the house leaves the seat up, 
Um, the other one of us is going to sit on that, yes. perhaps in the middle of the night, and then one of us is going to be in trouble, right? And so I am very good now. I've been very well trained, much like my dogs are trained to go in the garden. I've been very well trained to close the seat. <clears throat> so I could obviously learn to close the lid as well. And this this also reminds me of another uh, pod, another episode of Risky or Not that we did recently where we misinterpreted, we now know we misinterpreted a question from German listener Vivian, who was asking about drinking uh, water. We thought she meant drinking from the, tu- the bathroom tub, and what she meant was no, drinking from the bathroom tap, I guess also because of, of toilet plumes um, and, and aerosols. So, uh, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't know... Um, I don't know what else to say other than I think it's yes, it, it is. It is literally could not be more simple, but it also is probably not uh, high. I mean, what's again, what 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 when asked this question, what I've said to people before is, well, there, imagine a scenario where someone in your house has diarrhea, right? Well, OK, that's a different situation. I'm going to be firmly in the camp of a toilet lid down right under those circumstances. But the rest of the time. I don't really think it's that big a risk, but that's just, again, that's that's my risk management decision. Yeah, all of that makes sense, I will say. <laughs> I, I, and I understand, I understand that it, there is there is actual, you know, uh, science at play here and in, in, in determining risk. The, there's also been this, like, I feel like everybody has heard a zillion times not to keep your toothbrush on your... Um, on your bathroom countertop for this mm-hmm. reason that when mm-hmm. when when you flush uh you know particles can spread mm-hmm. up to mm-hmm. 6 feet away and your toothbrush is now contaminated and you know like keeping your toothbrush somewhere else is is it, it often more difficult than it sounds right right <laughs> i think right you know um so i will say we are toilet closers in our house i also have two kids they are 7 and 10 and very, <laughs> very early in their lives, I introduced the concept of invisible poop particles oh, love that it. <laughs> either get on your hands when you put your hands in your diaper or, you know, as toddlers or, um, you know, spraying from the toilet. And that image, I think, has haunted them um, therapy ever since. Yeah, totally. Like (laughs) invisible poop particles are, are, you know, out there. And, um, so we are toilet seat closers, uh, but we also keep our toothbrushes on the, on the sink countertop, um, because Mm -hmm. that's the only place to keep them. So I, I, I recognize that maybe, you know, I, uh, perhaps I'm sending this mixed messages here that, you know, like we need to close, but at the same time, like maybe this idea that our toothbrushes are becoming contaminated every time somebody goes to the bathroom is not quite right. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't think you're giving mixed messages. I think those are two sort of different um, risk management decisions, right? Like, so, and this is kind of the, the, I, I guess the complicating part about how, how, you know, how pathogens move and what we do in food safety and, and that there are no absolutes and all this kind of, kind of stuff where one of the reasons why our, like it's complicated and depends. That's what's on our food safety talk t-shirts is because, you know, in, in our family, home i i assume this this is the the assumption that i have that it, that if if one of the people who i live with has 
a, a pathogen issue, meaning that they are sick. They are wh- whether that's like COVID, whether it's norovirus, whether it's Campylobacter or Salmonella. Um, if if they are actively shedding those pathogens, there's relatively little in in the way that we operate one, inside of our home that will keep that pathogen from spreading. I think keeping my toothbrush and and I I'll make the most trite statement here um so far at least in this podcast um you know if I if I was leaving a toothbrush in a public restroom where there are just multiple people coming in over and over again think about like a dorm and situation. perhaps using your toothbrush while you're not there right right oh, that's Who knows? A, that's a whole yeah. other episode yeah 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 <laughs> but but like think of a dorm dorm room or a dorm situation oh, right, right? right like yeah. like yeah, um yeah. I, I went to uh, where, where I went to college. We we had sort of this traditional. Um, I think there was like twenty males on one side. We all shared a bathroom with three stalls and three sinks and three showers. And on the other side of the the lounge, there was twenty females, and they all shared a, a you know a, a a restroom with the with the same amenities. And and I never left my my toothbrush in there. And I didn't. It's not because of toilet plume. It's because I was really concerned what people would do if I left it in there and they came home drunk. Um, and but but you know that Valid kind concern. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. That, but that kind of situation, I think, is totally different, right? So, so I think that that's one of those things where it's it is a little bit like, you know, how you live, what your what your living situation is like, how separate you are versus how close you are, really impacts how much of a factor a toothbrush is going to be in that in that situation. Um, and, and one of the, and, you know, I guess to, to sort of bring it back to APHL and PulseNet and, and all of our favorite epidemiologists and, and scientists, one of, I, I think one of Don's and my favorite stories, um, in the world of food safety, um, comes to us from an outbreak that happened in, in Oregon that, uh, was relayed to the world by, um, you know, late great Bill Keene, um, and former, you know, state epidemiologist for, for the state of Oregon, where there, there was a, I think it was like a cheerleading competition or a sports competition. Um, there was food that was being there. All these folks were, all these people were staying in hotel rooms. And I've, I've experienced this as a father of, a you know, a dad of a parent or dad of not dad of a parent, dad of a hockey uh, player where we go to play hockey games and kids are in and out of rooms. There was um, food that was being stored in one of the uh, hotel restrooms, like, you know, what, whatever. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. In, in a reusable bag. Um, and um, it, w- one one thing that that was a factor in this uh, in this outbreak was all of a sudden, um, you know, vomit into a toilet into this hotel restroom led to vomit particles ending up on this food that was eaten by others um, in, you know, in, oh, God. Uh, yeah, on that on that team. And so that like. You know, that's a totally different situation, right? Like not all not all restroom situations are the same. Not all toilet plume is the same. Not all toothbrushes are the same. If I was someone vomits in my hotel bathroom and my toilet, my toothbrush is there. I think that's riskier than so leaving my toothbrush on my counter in my home all the time. Right. Like it's yeah. 
But Ben, the re, you know the real risk in that outbreak, right? <laughs> it was re, reusable grocery the bags. reusable grocery right. bags. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, uh, which was the headline. It, yeah, yeah. That's well. That's that's how I looked it up on the internet, and it was it was a it was a, a girls' uh, soccer group. Soccer. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So I, I that was that was the moment when I started washing my reusable grocery bags. <laughs> um, <laughs> I. I I think and uh, you know there is an interesting um I think it does represent uh something that that is very interesting. We've got um you know individual health and we've got uh community or or public health and and um the the choices that are to be made on any of these issues um are likely different depending on how uh, uh depending on which category they fall into and when um you know if if you are making a choice to um, to leave your toilet seat up in your own home, that likely only affects you and your family. And then, and then the messaging, the the public messaging comes later when you are sick. This is what you need to do to reduce risk to your community um, and to and to limit spread. Um, and then there are other. Of course, there are other situations where you are assessing risk because a risky behavior is going to affect your community and the public's health. And I think sometimes people, um, uh, I think it can get a little confusing yeah. and complicated. And, you know, uh, I actually think that one of the things that I have learned during the pandemic is that there is so much confusion among the public Um about the difference between clinical health and public health and when when and where you get advice and from whom and what situation, um, you know, when you need to listen to public health experts and when you need to listen to clinical health experts. Um, and I think it does, you know, a, a lot of that plays out, of course, um, in so many of these food safety issues, whether it's closing your toilet seat or, um, or, you know, whether it's uh, eating something that gives, you know, where there's a, a, a high risk of, of some sort of other gastrointestinal infection. So, so tell me, this is interesting. So tell me more about this, because it's not, that's not a distinction that I had heard ever being drawn. So the difference between clinical health and, and public health now, where, where sometimes we run into it in food safety. And I think, like 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 family physicians have gotten better about giving people good advice on food safety. They, I think they still often tell people, "Oh, you had food poisoning," um, but but and then never run any any um, stool samples. And so you know, right. we, So so that's that's not great. But I understand they're constrained by the the current uh, health system. But but I think generally, I think doctors do a pretty good job. Uh, you know, MDs do a, a, a pretty good job these days of giving pregnant women advice about what not to eat. Eat and stuff like that, but but t can you talk more about that? The distinction you drew between clinical health and public health, because like I said, that's not one that I'd, I'd heard. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Obviously, um, uh, I, both are so incredibly important in maintaining the the health of our population. Clinical health, your doctors, your nurses, the you know the people who are actually helping to treat your illness. You as an individual, you are sick. Um, or you need um, you need you know advice or treatment or whatever it is um, for something that is specific to you, and they will likely help you to understand how you know if you are infectious, how to um, 
you know, mitigate that, that risk. And, you know, when you can send your kids back to school and whatever. Right. Um, But they're focused on, on treating you as an individual. Treating you the individual. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No. And then, you know, public health is population health. How do we keep this from Mm. becoming an outbreak? So you, you go to the doctor, um, you have some sort of uh, GI infection. The doctor is going to help to treat you. Maybe they will do a stool sample. Maybe they won't. If they do, that stool sample uh, may be sent to your public health lab, your state public health lab, that will test it and compare to other people's stool samples and potentially identify an outbreak or cluster of infections. And then, um, and then it's sort of in uh, public health's hands um, between the laboratory scientists and the the epidemiologists and the public health nurses to figure out what is making this group of people in the population sick. So, um, you know, when, um, when we're looking for advice on how to, um, I think, you know, either how to prevent or treat or, you know, whatever in an individual, then uh, I think turning to doctors and nurses and those clinical medical providers um, is, uh, is a, is, that's a great source of information. When we are talking about how to address a, you know, potentially community spread or population spread um, and what needs to happen at that point, um, uh, your, your doctors and nurses may not be particularly helpful in that situation. Mm, you need right, to, right. you need to talk to public health. And at the same time, you're not going to go talk to a public health scientist about what kind of medication you need to be taking for some kind of infection, you know, like everybody has their, their roles and they need to work well together. Um, but also kind of recognizing, um, those distinctions. Yeah, no. And, yeah. and oh, Don't, so, go yeah, so that, that's you know that's that's really interesting. It makes me think of two two things. One uh, was my my Twitter uh, rise to stardom early in the pandemic when there was a, a medical doctor, family physician, who had a very elaborate YouTube video that was explaining to people just exactly how they had to practice aseptic technique as they oh, yes. were disinfecting <laughs> each and every grocery item that they brought into their house. And and it just hit me the wrong way. It's like, no, I think you're you're well intentioned, but you're making a whole bunch of people really worried about something that they don't need to be worried about. And then the other one, which I, I, I can't won't be able to find the tweet. But again, it was a very well intentioned person who was saying, yes, well, you know, wearing a mask is very important, but you have to do it right. And when I was in medical school, we did this thing where we we put on a mask and we covered it with shaving cream and we learned to take off the mask and not get any shaving cream on our fingers. And if you're going to wear a mask, you have to do it this way. And I remember thinking that doesn't really seem helpful either. I mean, most importantly, we should just be trying to get people to wear masks, not make them worried about not doing it right. Right. Like the like I understand like why you had to learn to do that in medical school, but that's not the situation that we're in right now in the pandemic. And so, yeah. So anyway, I, I really I really appreciate that, Michelle. And that does it gets to so many of the communications challenges, uh, you know, when we're dealing with a, any sort of small or large um, public health emergency. Um, 
I, 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 I remember that video. I, you know, of course, I think anybody on social media saw it 7,000 times um, and, and had a lot of interesting conversations because I think even at that point when it came out, um, science was becoming more and more clear that uh, surface exposure was not the primary way that COVID was, was spreading. So, and it was making people feel very scared. But at the same time, I think for some people wiping down their groceries, even if it was unnecessary, even if it was, you know, doing nothing but, you know, wasting Clorox wipes, um, it gave people a sense of like, maybe I'm doing something to protect myself. Maybe, you know, it it was a placebo. I mean that, you know, and I, uh, and there is something to that, you know, to, to, Oh, you know, sure. the, that that mental health side of like, I just need to feel like I'm doing something. Oh, 100% to protect my- for sure. And yeah, and, and there, there were so many people that were so angry at me in my in my reply <laughs> saying, how dare you, sir? This is my I have an immunocompromised person or, you know, whatever. And then equal and opposite and maybe even more people saying, oh, thank God, I tried to do this once and I almost had a panic attack. I was so worried I wasn't going to do it right. Thank you for giving me permission to not do this. And eventually, and, and you know, I mean, and so for the most part, like it's kind of, it's kind of like, well, that's a risk. It's a risk management decision, right? Like I can tell you from the perspective of everything we know about the virus, that the, your, your biggest risk of exposure of getting COVID-19 is when you're in the grocery store, right? It's not from yeah. the grocery packaging. Is it theoretically possible? Absolutely. If you do you want to do something to help manage that risk, knock yourself out, right? Go for it. I you know, but I'm here to tell you that that's not where the big risk is, right? The big risk is being around people indoors, not wearing a mask. That's what the science says. That's that's where the risk is. And now, and now, honestly, the big risk is uh, not being vaccinated and right. and being indoors and not wearing a mask, right? And so the 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 risk message has has continued to has continued to change. But again, I'm not. Uh, I, I, I'm very much not in the business of telling people what to do, only just no, sharing sure. my opinion and saying, hey, look, you do you do what 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 you want to do. And that's again, like, again, it comes up on risky or not. It's like, well, the uh, so apparently um, we uh, downy mildew um, is not a fungus. Ben. No, it is an oomycete, um, which is which is not not a fungus at all. Um, and you should not make pesto with it. Um, well, first of all, you should definitely not call it a fungus. Okay? Don't call and it a fungus. You should, you don't make pesto with it because it's gross, but it's probably not risky because it doesn't make um, mycotoxins or oomycotoxins oh, oh, or something. My, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but but it also, yeah, but it also. Uh, it, I just want to say not eating mildewy, mildewy basil is going on my literally could not be easier. <laughs> exactly. Well, See, this is a, we've got a new so, podcast. So let me, let me throw, let me throw, I got, I got two, I got two things. Cause what, what, it's what's the one? It's always two things. Yeah. Um, so, so one is that is easy if you have non mildewy basil and you, or, or you can divert and not make pesto, whatever your plans were. And I think that's where sometimes we have, like I, I've really had to step back and, and think about food waste and food disparity and food safety in that intersection uh, in a different way over the last decade than I did, uh, uh, you know, when I was introduced to food safety, because it, that is a that's a like that's a value decision, right? Like, but but if if I'm like just 
set on making pesto and my only basil source right now has mildew on it, what, how should I, what do I do? Right? Like that's, that's where some of our questions come from. And, and, and that's the like bougie, you know, sort of mm-hmm. example. I think a, a better example that, that, that comes up quite a bit is, you know, it's, it's like, it's certainly easy not to drink spoiled milk, right? Like it it's, could not be simpler. You smell it, it smells <laughs> off. But when we, when we think about sort of food disparity, food disparity in homes where that's not an option, that's our only milk. And I don't have my, like my snap benefits are out for, for the month. And I, and I don't have another choice here and my kids are going to eat cereal this morning either with milk or without milk, is it, is it risky or not to, to eat, to drink that milk that's spoiled? Let me deal with the, that tastes gross side of things. But tell me, is this going to give me salmonella or E. coli or, or listeria? And, and that's where I very firmly side. And again, it's a, it's a different view than I, than I used to have on, well, that that's a decision that you can make from a risk management standpoint. And it's really a quality management standpoint at that point, because the safety of that spoiled milk is, is not in question. Like, like we know what, well, well, it depends, right? Right, right. Because this is the show where we're allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Um, go. Because I did, I think I've talked about this here. So I'm working with a a large food company that's interested in food waste and and trying to do a deep dive scientifically to answer these questions. And it turns out with milk, um, the question is, well, what is the temperature of your refrigerator? Because there are some bacillus cereus organisms, uh, some bacillus, strains of bacillus cereus that are found in milk that, or that can be found in milk and that might grow and make a heat stable toxin, right? And then also if you're immunocompromised, there's a possibility if there's a lot of pseudomonas in that milk, there are, people can get sick from pseudomonas, which we commonly think of as a biosafety level one organism, but if the dose is high enough and the person is immunocompromised enough, there's a possibility there as well. But yeah, I agree with you, Ben, generally speaking, it's a quality decision yeah. with, with those asterisks. And, and it becomes a risk-risk trade-off, right? Right, oh, yeah. right, exactly, that, yes, that, yes. And, and those are, so some of those, like some of those things are, yeah, it, it is. Di- it, I don't know. It is difficult because I, I would certainly on in the mildew situation, I certainly would just go get more basil. Right. But if in a, if I'm in a situation where I, I can't do that, well, now what do I you know? What, what 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 should I do? And what's the what you know, what what's the risk to me? I wanted to come back to something because, Michelle, you, you mentioned it's really something that is 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 in sort of behavior theory about control when we were talking about wiping down and disinfecting packages yep. and and this has been really like from an academic standpoint to sit back and sort of reason how people are making decisions through the pandemic you know viruses are small and you can't see them Right. Right. So I, the invisible poop particles, invisible poop particles. (laughs) I I also can't see whether the person I'm around has it or not. You know, like if, if they're not actively displaying symptoms, I don't know if they're asymptomatic, you know, it's, I I have, I have very little control, um, over, you know, 
aerosols and um and, and and like being able to assess whether someone someone who I'm close to is going to make me sick. So what are the things that I can do that I have in my control that I actually could like you know see and feel and experience. Well, wearing a mask is is one. Yeah, but it, it you know and I'll, I'll again give all of the reasons why people don't wear masks. They're uncomfortable. They suck. Whatever. Sure. Um, but it's that a, wasn't all the reasons. Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> those are all the. Yeah. One of them wasn't even really a reason. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, but what? Yeah, whatever. But it's a it's a control, right? So there. So all of a sudden, someone can can rationalize why I don't want to use that control. Um, uh, you know, physical distancing and social distancing is something that we've battled with over the course of the last eighteen months. Yeah, but I really want to be around other people, right? Like that is a control, but but I it's not a control that I want, and but. This, you know, this idea of like washing, sanitizing. Okay, this is something that doesn't maybe cost me a lot. You know, similar to the to the lid. I feel like I'm doing something. I, and and I must be, right? Because it, sanitizing, disinfecting things, that's a good that's a good thing. And and so I can certainly see from, you know, from my experiences in food safety behaviors where that, where that grew in popularity because it it gives someone perceived control and it's in it's easy like it's 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 relatively simple and and I I can actually feel like I'm doing something and the the problem is that it you know in in the sort of behavior literature around around food safety and, and in infectious disease, we take the path of least resistance, right? Like, like what's the easiest thing for me to do that feels like I have some control? Okay, well, I'm going to do that. The others, I don't really like masks and I don't really, you know, want to not be around other people. That's a little harder. Let me just do the er- the easy thing. And I think that's how we got to this, right? Like, that's how, right. how this sort of grew. But it's, it's well, not, it's, it's like, it's well rooted in what we know about how people act. But, but even even there, I can't resist pointing out it's a risk risk trade off. Right. I, I'm so, so happy for this the, this article that came out in April uh, 2020, where they published an MMWR where they looked at uh, uh, chemical uh, disinfectant and chemical exposures um, from the National Poison Data System, showing that we had a spike in calls about people basically overusing cleaners and overusing disinfectants uh, much more than in the prior two years, probably because of people doing this in response to the the pandemic. And so anyway, I, I took you off your story, no. but I just can't resist making that point. No. I, and I think that, I mean, you, you highlight like it feels easy, right? But it's actually right. not because I can mishandle these disinfectants and sanitizers in, in a way that actually could make me sick. Yeah. I, yes. And I, 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 I mean, all great points. And I, 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 I noticed um, during that time as that video was circulating and people were saying, you know, I had friends and family who were saying I'm wiping down now I'm wiping down all of my groceries. And I have family who was, who did it for all of 2020, like even yep. after it had already. Uh, and then in the same people posting uh, photos and videos, uh, you know, cooking with their kids and baking with their kids and, and making very, let's say questionable food safety decisions at home because, well, like if my kid just eats, you know, like a, a little bit of this raw 
cookie dough or right, whatever, right. then, you know, but, but I'm going to wipe down my groceries to prevent COVID. Um, and it, the, it, it like, yes. I just, it, it was just it, like the irony was just, I was like, it, it, you know, it took all of my physical strength not to respond. Um, yeah. And, and I think but, that there's some, but it gets oh, back to raw cookie dough tastes good. People yes. want to eat it. And I, you know, we are not willing to give that up. And, well, and it is and, a, a risk assessment, you know. And you can and you can probably do that many, many times and not get sick. Totally. Until you do. Yes. Right. I mean, well, and I, one of the things that I always have the hardest time uh, conveying in communication about food safety um, are the you know, widely variable incubation periods. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, somebody eats raw cookie dough and then the next day they're like, oh, I'm fine. So I can, I can continue doing it. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I had a rare hamburger and mm -hmm. it's delicious and I love it that way. And three hours later, I'm not sick. So everything is fine. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I think that's when it becomes really difficult to communicate some of this, you know, some of the, the, science and how those things work um, and how it should affect behavior. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very, so one of the things that I started doing recently was to uh, start following or to get subscribed to um, updates from iwaspoisoned.com. Uh, and it l sends me alerts whenever, whenever somebody in my neighborhood uh, or in the, in the area of the state where I live gets sick from food poisoning. And in inevitably there's not enough information or if there is information that they got sick uh, like a couple hours after they ate and they're sick with diarrhea. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's not from the food that you you ate uh, yeah. that you think it was, right? It wasn't really from the McDonald's. It was from whatever the thing is you had 24 or 48 hours ago. Right. Yeah. Yes. There, so I'm, we'll, we'll uh, have a few show notes on, on this, but one, one thing that I think we're battling in the cookie dough situation versus COVID is something also that's, that's sort of well discussed in the risk communication literature about familiarity. So, so, you know, raw cookie dough, there's in, in licking spoons, um, in making cake batter. Cause there's a nice, uh, you know, outbreak recently linked to, to cake batter and, and that's multiple, um, outbreaks linked to, to that type of, uh, food in, in the past couple of years, there is a nostalgic familiarity that we have from kids, like from, from our, you know, our, our childhood, at least, and maybe not our collective childhoods, but, but in, in many cases, as, as it's sort of been, um, reported that this is something that people do that if, if it was risky, why would my mom let me do this? Right. Like that, which is, so I've, I, it's a learned behavior and it is, as Don said, I haven't gotten sick until, until I do, but I have a lot of familiarity with this practice. COVID, you know, SARS-CoV-2, we don't have any familiarity with it. I mean, we do, yeah. we do now, but even now it's still an emerging pathogen. I mean, it's still, it's still young. It's not something that we've dealt with from our childhood that, that has been passed down, um, on how to manage it from, from, um, you know, generation to generation. And, and I would say that this is one of, and, and it's not, not just me, but there were some, some sort of arguments made early on in pandemic communication about the challenge of using flu, you know, influenza as a yeah. model because of familiarity, right? Like, well, it's a pathogen we've lived with, with for, and talked about for over, 
you know, a hundred years. And well, and and yeah. certain people that are co-hosts of this podcast might have even gone on another podcast and said something about, well, how, you know, <laughs> it's not really that much riskier than the flu, right? Right. right. So, and obviously, I've adjusted my messaging because I think it is different than the flu. But it, that was a comfortable thing that we could latch on to to say, well, it's kind of like this thing, right? Based on what we know right now, and 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 yeah, and maybe and maybe maybe Max was right to be a little more risk averse than I was. <laughs> but yeah, but but for me. Familiarity plays into this, right? Like how I make right. a risk management decision is based on how comfortable and familiar I am with the risk. How how many times have I encountered it and and managed it? Well, managed it correctly or incorrectly is is more of a value judgment, but managed it without, in my own way, without getting sick, without a consequence, right? And and so when you're faced with something that's brand new that you don't have any experience or familiarity with, you 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 latch on to the things that I can control um, because I, I don't have experience with this. And that's like, to me, a fascinating part of this from an academic standpoint. And it's why you know, communicating about flower risks is so difficult because even, you know, 10 years ago, the, the food safety world, even though there was a, 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 a you know, two papers that we know of, a one in Australia and one in the U.S. looking at the potential for pathogens in raw flour, we didn't have any illnesses. You know, and, and again, coming back to APHL and the epidemiologists that, that are supported through your, you know, your network, Michelle, it's not something that was on our collective radar. So we didn't have messaging available. We, we weren't thinking about it until it was. And now all of a sudden we have a uphill battle because it wasn't on our collective radar. And, and we're like, you know, Don, you've lived through this more than I have as it relates to produce, because similarly until the mid 1990s, fresh produce wasn't on our collective radar from a food safety standpoint until it was. And it's taken multiple decades for that to bubble up into the public um, understanding of the science around the risks associated with, you know, with produce largely because we've had, uh, you know, I, I would argue outbreaks happen at a time um, where uh, around uh, you know Thanksgiving here in the U.S., multiple years in romaine and other leafy greens that have just helped raise the awareness because that's a different time to consume news than uh, you know whether it was just a Tuesday in in February. That's part of why we're more focused on on produce. And there, I mean, there's lots of other factors if. Sort of, you know, the industry putting a lot of focus on it, trying to solve the problems. But but it was not something that if if we if a podcast existed in 1995 <laughs> and we were the three of us were talking about this, um, we would not have talked about fresh produce food safety. Like it, it wasn't no one we didn't we weren't it wasn't something that we were familiar with. And now we are. But it takes time for that familiarity to come through. Sure. Um. So. Michelle, I wanted to to sort of ask you a couple of things because um, because right. you're, you're a guest and we get to interview guests. And <laughs> well, although if we would ever stop talking, then we yeah. would let we would let our guests speak. Yeah, yeah, but but we're I, I'm enjoying listening to all the talking, so don't don't worry. <laughs> yeah. So so I um one 
my introduction to um, to APHL is uh, someone who I think is a friend of the show, um, but but certainly someone who I've I've met um, multiple times and seen at food safety conferences. Um, Sherry Shea, and I, I met I met Sherry a long long time ago. Um, like I think I was a graduate student and speaking at an AFTO meeting before I'd moved to to the U.S. and we were we happened to be like standing next to each other at a you know reception um or or something and you so the reason why I bring up Sherry is she you know you know somewhat connected us on in this Twitter thread um the on toilet plume but also you you had a podcast way early and we haven't mentioned this you host. APL APHL's APHL's podcast Lab Culture and I do yeah and and way back at the start of Lab Culture episode four um, was a podcast that I listened to um, recently in preparation to have you on on the past present and future on of PulseNet and Sherry was a guest and so was friend of the show friend of ours Brian Zouders and and so one I guess. One thing that that I wanted to ask you about was how did you like you know you you manage media for APHL there's lots of different ways to get information out there how did you get into podcasting you've you've now had you know multiple episodes um over the last uh, few years um there was a really good one uh from last year on you know just the discussion of diversity equity and inclusion in public health laboratories you know how did you get into to podcasting and and what you know what are you looking for when it comes to content um in that you know in in your podcasts well, first of all, uh, you did a lot of research. So, uh, and by way of giving me additional downloads, so thank you. Um, uh, but I also have to say, yeah, Sherry is um, Sherry's our director of food safety. Um, she's a wonderful colleague and a very good friend, um, uh, and she has um, she has you know been uh, one of the the people who has who has really introduced me. To all of this food safety science so much. And Brian also um, is a, he works for one of our member laboratories. And I've also known him for a very long time. He's another great food safety expert. Um, so yeah, that uh, the, the history of uh, past, present, and future of PulseNet um, was, uh, was really fun and interesting. I feel like it, I, I know that PulseNet is sort of one component of our nation's um, food safety system, uh, but it really kind of, it, it demonstrates, um, so much of the evolution of, you know, how science has progressed, um, and really quickly, um, in terms of APHL's podcast lab culture, uh, if I'm being honest, I started it because I really love podcasts. Um, <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and, that's how uh, we got here. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, um, you know, at the, at the root of my job is, uh, storytelling and, you know, I, I am trying to, um, convey as much, uh, public health information and, um, to, uh, share the work of our, uh, of APHL's member labs as much as possible and doing that through stories and, you know, really trying to, um, trying to personify in a way, a lot of what the labs are doing. Um, 
I have felt like was the best way, whether it was on social media or on the blog or in the media. Um, and then with the podcast and I, I really just love sitting down with, um, whether it's APHL staff or with our members and hearing about, uh, the work that, that they do. And something that I always find very interesting, and maybe this is your experience as well, but, uh, Public health lab scientists rarely think they are doing interesting work. And it like, <laughs> yes. there's like, they're so like humble and, um, you know, sort of shy about uh, stepping out in the forefront and, you know, being like, wow, I'm doing this really amazing, awesome thing. And uh, it's hard sometimes to draw that out. Uh, and I, I find that um, doing the, podcasts and having these conversations and, um, you know, I get very easily excited about things. And so, you know, it kind of gives them a safe space to do the same. Um, I did one of my, one of the most fun, uh, interviews I did was, um, I interviewed two of the scientists from the Alaska public health lab about some of the, the unique, um, uh, challenges, but also experiences that they have in Alaska, being Alaska. Uh, and it was, it was supposed to be an episode focused on flu, um, because Alaska tends to have a year round, um, flu season, I suppose, uh, because they get so many tourists from all over the world. Um, and it turned into, (laughs) it, it evolved into, uh, a whole range of unique um, experiences in Alaska, including having to use dog sleds to um, <laughs> to pick up samples and um, it, something about a, 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 a rotting. I'm trying to remember what kind of sea mammal uh, on a on a tarmac in at the at the airport and needing uh, public health to come in and figure out uh, if there had been, you know, risk to uh, people who had who had exposure to this, cra- I don't know. It was wow. disgusting and amazing. And uh, um, I, I, I think that it's just, you know, sometimes not in the pandemic year, but in other years, I am so, uh, I have to like pinch myself that this is really my job, that I get to, you know, talk to these people doing these really fascinating, weird things. The pandemic year, uh, there was not a lot of that pinching, but right. yeah. in, well, yeah. you know, yeah. in every other, in every other year, it's been, um, it's just so fun and, and, uh, fascinating. Um, and I get to be like, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm getting to, um, to have like high school science all over again, but in this, in this very real world, um, kind of way. And it's great. I love it. Did, have you, so something that you said really struck me because I had a very similar, experience um when i attended a conference here in raleigh a couple of years ago at urging of um one of my epidemiology friends uh, michael bazacco and it was a, a conference um cste which is the council of state and territorial epidemiologists has yes. have you been to that before have you ex- experienced that conference I have not uh, been to their conference, but but CSTE is one of APHL's closest partners, as yeah. you can imagine. Well, so that conference kind of blew me away. And I, I told Don, I was texting him while I was sitting there. They, they have these just amazing 
you know, four to eight minute lightning talks about outbreaks that none of us have heard about because exactly what you what, what you said, this sort of like unsung salt of the earth heroes are around public health don't really see sometimes the importance of telling the story of what they're doing, not just for us to be like, oh, man, that, you know, that's a lot of. There are a lot of challenges. There's there's a lot of work that goes behind keeping the public safe in in a public health realm, but also solving some of these outbreaks and being able to understand some of the risk factors that that led to them. I I probably went to thirty or forty talks that were all short, presented in a way that was just so captivating that that made me think those stories need to like. The folks that Don and I work with in the food industry need to hear those stories because there's lots of stuff happening in there like that that they can use, you know, an, an outbreak linked to um, um, a liver, chicken liver, you know, that was that was sort of sauteed, a campylobacter outbreak. One of those you know, sort of areas that we haven't. Um, again, that's kind of emerging, but being able to share that back to some of the high-end institutional food service folks that are making food for you know the Super Bowl or all these other you know sporting events or or you know the Oscars big events to say you know what your folks need to know about the risks associated with making some of this high-end food that is 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 very much like nestled into a story that no one's really sharing. And and as I was sitting there, I was like, man, here's another thing that I, I didn't you know know about, but, but we need to tell the story of how the lab found this, what the epidemiologists found, what the risk factor was, and then really complete the circle of, all right, what's the risk management decision, right? Like, what do we do with this? Right. Um, yeah. So. I, I love those stories. I love the ones that, uh, that, you know, that people haven't heard of. There's, we have a, we have a blog post. So during the, 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 the pulse net anniversary, which was when we did that podcast episode, we also gathered a bunch of stories from our, our member labs. And one that I will never forget, um, was, uh, in Michigan through their department of agriculture, they had a program where they would do random sampling on, um, pet food and they, uh, there was a sample that, that came back as, you know, having, I don't remember what pathogen. And um, long story short, they ended up being able to link it to a cluster of human illnesses that had otherwise gone um, unresolved. Huh. They, you know, uh, and, and it was, you know, like this fluke thing. I mean, I guess not totally a fluke. It was a system <laughs> of, you know, this, this, uh, testing system of, uh, for pet food. Um, and, uh, it had been, you know, like, uh, babies crawling around on the floor and, um, you know, sort of getting the, the pathogen on their hands. And, um, it was so, it was so interesting to me, um, because it's not, it, first of all, it was, I, I don't remember it being in the news. It was, um, and, and it was something that I never otherwise would have, uh, would have thought of. Um, and I also just really love when these, like these systems that are in place work and they, they demonstrate value because most of the time they find nothing, but when they do, um, you know, it, it's so important 
Yeah, and from just reading from the blog post, um, the basically because they found this organism, Salmonella infantis, in the dog food, that linked to 50 human cases that they previously knew were linked, but they didn't know to what, right? And so, yeah, it's it's so it's so interesting, and it's just it's so. Uh, I, I often think if I had, if only, if my life had gone a little bit differently and I had discovered epidemiology before I discovered food microbiology, I, I probably would have been an epidemiologist because this stuff is just so much in my wheelhouse. Yeah, it really is. And I, along those lines, I, uh, public health communication was not where I expected to find myself. And, um, and, uh, and, and I'm here and it's so, you know, I, I often feel like not having that background in science, um, is, uh, is, is really beneficial to my job, um, so that I can, you know, ask the questions that, you know, regular non-scientist folks like myself, uh, are, are curious about and, and being able to identify something like, like this in Michigan where, uh, you know, they sort of felt like it was very routine um and being able to say wait a minute that like that's wild and i i realize that's how things are supposed to work um but that doesn't make it any less fascinating yeah absolutely your 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 experience with with this and sort of telling that story um you reminds me of um a, a conversation i had recently with uh, a documentary producer who who asked like probably the biggest question that I've ever been asked, which is, could you give us evidence that food safety has gotten better since Jack in the Box? <laughs> which, yeah. right? Like, okay, wow, yeah. that's really that's really really big. But I I I, I shared two two stories and very similar to what what you what, what you said in in that blog post about dog food the you know to me bluebell is the the outbreak uh, listeria outbreak linked to bluebell is is one of those like public health everything fell into place outbreaks that that got solved and it is like complex like there's a lot going on but you know here here you have and, and we'll link to this in in show notes from um, from uh, from CDC's uh, page on this outbreak, in it, 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 the story goes, in February 2015, South Carolina Department of Health, uh, environmental control goes into um, uh, goes uh, into a distribution center, does some random sampling, finds Listeria monocytogenes, uploads it into PulseNet, finds that there's a whole bunch of well, not a whole bunch. Of, I, shouldn't, I should go back. There are a few um, Listeria um, illnesses and deaths linked to this same uh, PFG uh, that go back to 2010. And so it's 10 infections from 2010 to 2014. The investigation takes them to um, Kansas. Uh, the uh, hospital um, in in Kansas or a couple of hospitals in Kansas. Um, and, and that leads to um, this, you know, milkshake, um, you know, immersion blender that might've been housing Listeria monocytogenes and biofilms that just wasn't cleaned and sanitized properly. But, but like, okay, so we've got 10 illnesses and we think we know that there's a factor here with Listeria and it's not a, not something that is widespread in, in the public, but the, the, 
the fallout or the response is all of a sudden now we're looking more for Listeria and ice cream all throughout the country, finding it in, you know, in, in small pockets, uh, a few other outbreaks that, that, that pop up in, in time. To me, it's like a, a public health, like just, you know, story of none of this happens without PulseNet. None of it happens without sort of a, a coordinated network of laboratories and epidemiologists. The, the fact that we're actively trying to, to connect illnesses, but don't have sources and that those sources might come up four or five years after the time certainly pisses off the food industry, but is a good public health story. And it tells us, Oh, we should be looking at things differently than, than we were. The other example that, that I gave this, um, this producer was around, um, almonds. And so, you know, uh, Don and I have a, a friend, um, friend of the show, uh, Linda Harris, who, who at UC Davis, who, um, sometimes listen to our podcast when she's on long walks. Um, but she, you know, was, was, uh, was an extension specialist or is an extension specialist, um, or extension person. I don't think that's her actual title, uh, at, at UC Davis <laughs> working with, um, uh, you know, tree nuts and, and, and supporting the, the food industry there and, and was faced with, uh, you know, about 20 years ago, an outbreak of salmonella, multiple outbreaks of salmonella linked to raw almonds where the food industry, you know, um, laboratories, epidemiologists highlighted the problem, but the food industry, the, the almond industry essentially invested millions of dollars into trying to fix it. And what we have now is you really don't have raw almonds that are on the market. You have, um, you know, pasteurized almonds that have a, a, a texture and flavor of raw, but the, the only risk management strategy was to really focus on a post-harvest intervention. And, and those like the, this bluebell example, the pet food example, the almond example for me are all public health, like, I don't know, stories that demonstrate how much better we are at food safety than we were 30 years ago, that folks who eat food, who go to the grocery store, probably, first of all, don't care about, secondly, aren't aware of. And, and you know, but but there are, there is an audience out there, there are some, some individuals out there that want to know about this. And so to be able to tell those stories and be like, like you are, Michelle, in the public connecting these you know, behind the scenes heroes in, in food safety and other public health, um, standpoints. I think that's really, I think it's important. And it's something that, that there's a space to do that wasn't even there 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, uh, at, at APHL, we, we often say that when public health works, no one sees it. And, you know, it, public health exists behind the scenes, as you said, and when these systems are working well and they are um, stopping, you know, outbreaks from growing or they are helping communities to reduce um, spread of any number of infections, then we don't hear about it. You know, it doesn't make the news when somebody doesn't get sick from something. Um, and that's a real challenge. Uh, you know, how do we keep this work in the in in the public eye when it's working when things are going really well and um you know public health funding is is um uh notoriously low around the country whether it's 
you know, at any levels of, of government. Um, and there's just a constant, constant need for um, increasing funding to be able to continue to do this work and to do it well, yet it ends up being cut because, uh, you know, it doesn't appear as though uh, it's, it's necessary um, when, when things are going really well. Um, and uh, it's a, we, we have a, we have a, an amazing policy and advocacy team that obviously that focuses on this um, uh, more specifically, but it is, it is a constant sort of underlying um, objective with all of the communications that we're doing, making sure that people understand that uh, when, um, when they're not hearing about major outbreaks in the news, that that's a good thing, that that means that, uh, that, that uh, you know, the, the lab scientists and the epidemiologists are, are, are catching um, those uh, cases before they can grow in a community and become Jack in the box or bluebell, you know, and, and even though those, you know, I think the bluebell example is a good one, ultimately, um, was a success. It was a complicated situation. Um, you know, it, it, not every outbreak is, is, is going to be that big in, in part because, uh, systems are, are able to, um, to, to help make sure it doesn't continue to happen. Yeah. And, you know, one of, one of the things that struck me about a um, a talk I saw from um, uh, Rob Tokes, uh, um, gosh, I don't know, 15 years ago, when he was talking about this so from from CDC, uh, you know, individual who investigates foodborne um, uh, outbreaks and does a lot of the you know, coordination and epidemiology to, uh, at, from CDC's standpoint, um, he, he said, he, someone asked a question in res- in response to, I think it was the spinach linked, uh, E. coli 157H7 outbreak in 2006 about, uh, of the blips right on, on our baseline of pathogens, how many do we, do we investigate you know, fully just, you know, ballpark on, on average, do we deploy, um, resources to, to actually try to figure out what the, what the source is. And this, again, this is a, this is a while ago, so I don't know if this has changed, but he said, you know, maybe one in 10. So there's, you know, to, to me, there's, there's 90% of these outbreaks out there that, that are maybe, that are clusters of illnesses. We don't know what the sources are. We may, we don't have the resources to investigate them. They may not be sort of low hanging fruit. It, it, there's not a, a common geographics thread. There's not a common, you know, preliminary data thread that we kind of just let float out there for a while because we just, we can't, we can't look at all the signals as, as a public health uh, community. Um, and, and I, you know, o- over time, I, I hope that gets, continues to get better, but that also, it kind of blew me away. I was like, wow, that's, you know, so many of the ones that were, what drives food safety from a management standpoint is, is outbreaks, not cases. And it's outbreaks that we've solved. And I'll, I'll use my Richard fingers for that. Um, yeah. You, right, yeah. It, this, so Ben, this, this, this reminds me of, um, 
a, a talk that I heard by another CDC epidemiologist, Art Liang, that I talk about from time to time. And I think I'm I think I'm remembering this correctly. Um, but basically, Art showed that there was a, a very clear correlation between the number of epidemiologists employed in a state hmm. and that state's ability to 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 find and to solve outbreaks. And so, of course, the clear solution, what this means for public health is if you want to eliminate outbreaks, <laughs> simply eliminate epidemiology. Right, right. right. Because yeah. the more out, the more epidemiologists you have, the more that you will find, <laughs> which comes back to the earlier question that the, that person posed to you about, can you tell me things got better since Jack in the Box? And the answer is, well, it's hard to tell yes. because it's a moving playing field, right? We have we have PulseNet, and now we have um, whole genome sequencing or or next generation sequencing, and we have you know difference in funding between different states, right? Like you know it's like uh, why do why do so many people uh, get sick um, in uh, in in Minnesota? Well, it's not because people get more sick in Minnesota; it's because they have a crackerjack uh, team of epidemiologists, right? And so it's it's really. It, it, it's really interesting. Like there's not, how do you, how do you adjust for that, that denominator in, you know, how you're measuring risk? And the answer is, I don't think you really can. I mean, again, maybe you could do correlations like, like what art has done. And we do, we certainly know from um, FoodNet, we know that there are uh, way more uh, cases than we are ever able to link to outbreaks. And we, and we, and of course, most cases go unreported. Uh, and CDC actually has these underreporting factors that they they know that they're only seeing a fraction of the actual number of cases out there. So anyway, more 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 work for all of us to do. Certainly, and I you know uh, the it is the 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 one in ten number um, uh, is is interesting in terms of which outbreaks are able to be uh, investigated uh, or which clusters are able to be investigated. And, you know, I, I think uh, it's worth noting also that um, samples are coming into, uh, you know, your state public health lab every day um, and tests are being done um, uh, to, you know, identify foodborne pathogens um, and, that information is being entered into databases and, and being compared to others. And, and then at that point there's, you know, there is sort of the, the decision about whether or not to investigate and when to investigate. Um, the, the work in the lab is, uh, is still being done. And those, um, all of that testing is, is still being done. Then, however, where some of the, you know, shortages in, in funding and, and resources and capacity comes in is when there is some other public health emergency and um, the lab has to increase capacity in some other area. Let's say there is a really terrible flu season, for example. Um, some of those microbiologists working on food safety are going to need to be pulled out of that lab and sent over to support. Right. Um testing in, in other areas. And that means that there's something that's not being done. And I, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in, uh, where there's been some sort of public health emergency. And we have said, gosh, I really, we, we have to cross our fingers really hard that there's not some sort of major foodborne outbreak that is going to require, uh, resources at the same time. Um, and you know, it's a, it is a dance that I think public health labs have become very accustomed to 
and it feels natural and normal. Um, but it's so unfortunate, you know, uh, that, that this is the way that, that responses have to happen. Well, and you, you, you hit on something that, that we haven't really talked about too much on, on this podcast, but I just sent you guys a, um, a, a paper that, that came on my radar, um, back in the spring about the fallout from COVID burnout in public health. And, and so, you know, their surveys are, are always have, have limitations. Um, but, but this was, uh, something that was published in international journal of environmental, um, res public health. Uh, I can't remember response in public health research research. Maybe that's what it is. Yep. Uh, uh, this, you know, public health workforce burnout and COVID-19 response in the U S um, among responses received last, you know, last year, 66% of public health workers reported burnout, but more pro- problematic to me is as of September, 2020, almost 25%, um, fewer respondents plan to remain in the public health workforce for three or more years compared to their reported January, 2020 plans. And so not only is the, is the public health dance, this this moving target and moving from um you know out- outbreak to to pandemic but that that move is is going to take some of these fantastic individuals to other jobs and yeah. so we're going to have this glut of of problems um that that's going to have ripple effects throughout the you know the next decade or, or longer and it's yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty wild to to think about those just the the limits of not having a public health focus sometimes and, and, and limited resources. And I, I think like, you know, not to get too much in the political aspect of this, I think it's only going to get worse, right? Like you, you see just the, in, in, you know, certain jurisdictions, the lack of trust in public health is, is just, you know, tragic. It's, it's a whole, um, yeah, it's, it's a problem. Oh, for sure. And I, I will say, uh, the the public health funding issue, um, you know, it's a it is it's a spectrum, of course, but it 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 is an issue across political parties. This is, you know, of course, in in some situations it's easier, in some situations it's harder, but it's always hard, um, and it, it's it always seems to be difficult to in a in a normal year in a normal situation um, to convey the importance of of increasing funding to. Um, to uh, local, state, and federal public health teams who are who are trying to do as much as they can with less. Yeah, well, and it's like, it's like our colleagues in the food industry who whose job it is to prevent food poisoning. It's like, why are we paying you all this money? It's like, well, because no, I'm making things not happen. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> so right. it's like, how do you how do you justify your existence? Why? Well, you could fire me, I guess, and see if you if you cause some outbreaks, you know, uh, you know, that's because because like, yeah, how, how do you how do you how do you do that? How do you my job is to make things not happen? Yeah. Right. Yeah. In the absence of something happening is it is a, we, we need to celebrate. Well, you know, that's hard. It's a hard sell. Uh, that that's out there. Well, and I think that's why for, for me, I think about these sort of complete stories, the, the pet food one, 
um, bluebell, the almonds as here's public health in action, right? Like, like we, we only had 10 cases over a four year period that tragically, you know, led to three, four deaths, I think in, in bluebell, but had that sort of random sample not happened, then maybe we're looking at dozens of illnesses over a 10 year period linked to, to that plant. We don't, we don't know, but that's a, we, we solved something here, right? Like we, we oh. were able to, to do something. Yeah. But also if we had a non-zero yes. tolerance, if we had a tolerance for listeria and foods that don't support the growth, there would have been an incentive to test and yada, yada, yada. Hey. Anyway, we don't need to go plow that ground again. But right, right. But, <laughs> but no, no, no. This is a fantastic segue because I'm going to send you both <laughs> a message um, here about something I wanted to, to talk about and get and Michelle to get your your take on oh, this. Yeah. Yeah. This is an, um, a, a recall that that um, was triggered a, a couple of weeks ago now linked to muffin products coming out of uh, give and go prepared foods. Uh, and, and so this, you know, came, came to us through, through the Twitter sphere for, through one of, one of our friends, um, squirrel chomp. Um, and you know, the, the, I think the message was you know, muffins is nothing sacred. Nothing muffins, safe, yes. Yeah. Nothing safe. Muffins <laughs> now, are, are now risky. And, and this is a really, this is a really interesting one because on on one hand, certainly we want to know that pathogens are, you know, again, using my Richard fingers associated with these products. I, I have a tough time figuring out whether these products, well, no, I don't have a tough time. I don't think these products are risky. Um, and in a, you know, if, we, if we look down here, we've got a whole bunch of um, you know, muffins, cookies, not or no Oreo. Muff, mini muffins, lots of different different things, but there's not a whole lot of information. All it says is we became aware of this issue as part of our environmental monitoring program. To date, we have received no reports of illnesses related to this issue, taking action out of an abundance of caution. It it, it doesn't tell us what, really um, how risky this is. Good, I mean, I, I would say good on give and go, to to <laughs> I keep thinking is that, is this like isn't there a like isn't that a Canadian expression? Good giver giver is the Canadian giver. Ex- yeah okay, good on giver. giver. Go. I Canadian wish we had mother. giver and go. Uh, <laughs> I think that's that, that's like what what uh, what we used to say on our way to a hockey tournament. Um, but you know the I mean that's good. It, it, it's I I think it's re- it's responsible to re- recall these products. I don't think that they're that they're risky. And it, it, it and it does sort of highlight, you know, the maybe the why people don't test for listeria, and we don't have all the details from environmental monitoring. But it, but I think it provides a challenge, right? So Michelle, what I wanted to ask you about was what, how do you, how you know this isn't something that looks like it came through an APHL lab, but it might have. Um, you know, maybe there's, there's follow up and I don't want to, you know, get, get you into trouble talking about something that's not that that's no, no. outside of your, you know, your lane, but you know, how, how do you communicate this right? What, from a science communication standpoint, I think this is one where, where Don and I are probably at odds in with others in, especially in the regulatory realm on what this actually means and what's the risk to, to people. Should there be a recall? I, I, I think um, I think yes. Is this a risky product? I think it's no. 
Um, and again, that's the different podcast for risky or not. But um, but anyway, I wanted to, to pitch this out because I think it was a nice segue uh, into this. So, Michelle, what's yeah. your what's your thought here? I well, so um, I, I I don't I mean, this is the first that that I'm seeing it. So I don't have much background, but um, <laughs> that's what we do on risky I, or not. So you're good. Yeah. Welcome to no, the, our show. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I yeah, I mean, people would never think of of a fully baked muffin as being, you know, inherently high risk. When I see listeria, um, you know, I think listeria can be really scary. And, and that, um, uh, that always raises a flag for me. Um, I think also in a product like a muffin where there are, you know, we have potentially, um, more high risk populations that are going to be eating them like young kids, um, then I think, you know, I think going for, um, I think going with a recall, you know, I, as a consumer, I, I appreciate that very much. Um, and I think that it's important also to, uh, you know, just generally as a reminder that, um, oftentimes the, you know, foods that carry a risk of a, you know, pathogen could, are, are often not the foods that we think of first. Um, I mean, you mentioned produce earlier, but also, you know, we see so many hummus recalls and, you know, I remember peanut butter and, um, now muffins. And, you know, I think it's important for people to remember that when we're dealing with food, uh, it, it literally could be anything. Um, and, uh, you know, we do the best that we can in terms of, uh, food preparation, but we also just kind of need to stay aware. And so for something like this, if, uh, if a, if the public health, if, if a public health lab was not the one doing the testing, it may have been a private lab. A lot of these companies have yeah. contract labs. Um, then, uh, you know, sharing it for people's information so that they can, if they have muffins in their house, or if they have recently had packaged muffins that they can, they can check and make sure, um, that they're not continuing to eat them. Yeah, Ben, if you look at the bottom of the announcement from Give and Go, it's uh, underneath all of the, the pictures of the products, it says, we became aware of this issue as part of yeah. our environmental monitoring program. And so my suspicion, and I think I might have shared this in the tweet thread with Squirrel Chomp, is that the... Um, I think what they happened was they found listeria on a food contact surface, and then they had to say, okay, well, what's all of the product that might have come across this food contact surface? Um, and then, lo and behold, it's a massive recall. Yeah. Well, and and here's like you know, Michelle, I think your comments are really you know re really key here, and this is one of the challenges we I think we have in food safety communications. Right. So, yes, it's a recall. We want people to go to their pantry to, to check to see if they have it and don't, you know, don't eat this. Um, is the risk is is the risk zero? It's not it's not zero. Is it really, really low? Pro probably. Is the risk different if you're immunocompromised? If you're if these uh, muffins have been sold as part of like institutional food service in a hospital, I think that's a totally different message. But I think that's that's where I would. I would focus. I think the if if an individual is pregnant, it's a much higher potential for for risk because the consequences is really high. But where and and I, I you know this comes back to the conversation we had earlier about 
um, sort of COVID management and control, sometimes people come to us or come to the food safety world and say, you know what, I've been serving, I'll just pick one of these, great value blueberry snack muffins, 12 ounces, eight per case, to my kids in their lunch every day for the last seven months. Should I panic? And that's a much harder question to answer to me, right? Like, like that's a that's different from what should I do if it's in my pantry now? But often those are the types of questions that people are asking. What do I do? Do I go should I go to the doctor? Should we get a stool sample culture? My my kid, you know, it seems fine, but are they really? What if I miss what if I miss something here? And I think that's Part of our challenge in science communications and public health communication is this recall message doesn't answer that question. FDA, it, and and I, you know, I, we we've talked we we you know we've talked about this on this podcast, um, you know, historically, FDA does a really good job taking um, a, a company's recall announcement and magnifying it. Right, that's exactly what they did. If you look at what what's on FDA's page, it's exactly what Give and Go put out there. Is this based on good risk communication? Ah, I don't think so. Um, that's not FDA's role in magnifying this message. But give and go, this might be their first recall. This might be their first time dealing with something like this. I think that there's not a lot of actionable messaging that that those nuance questions pop pop up. And in any of the like, you know, if if you kind of Google give and go recall, you'll just see the, the magnification of this message through media, food safety news. It, it's out there. Hey, there was a list, there is a listeria linked recall for these products. But I, I, I think we're, I think we collectively are failing in the, like, how, is that the right, what's the message? Like, what are the things that, that we could really, what kind of information could we really get to people that's that's actionable for all those different types of audiences? Um, and that's well, I mean, yeah, I think it's simple. It's like if you have these products, you should return them for your money back. And if you've eaten these products, probably don't worry. Right. Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what more you can do than that. Watch your symptoms. And, you know, if you do get sick, mention this to your doctor, yeah. you know, but it doesn't yeah. really say any of that, right? Like those are all the no. things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the and and if you're in these high risk um situations, you should think about this more. And and if I was you know, if if we ruled the whole public health communication world, which we don't, uh, this message we should. We, we should. should. we should. This <laughs> message to me goes to the institutional food service people more than anything, right? Like I want to know if the nursing home that that um, that that buys these got this information, that that they should they they really need to be on much higher alert than you know my um my uh, uh, a mom who's been using this for seven months or a dad that's been using this for seven months in in their um in their kids lunches. Well, and and I think that this and I got a message from a communications person from a professional society who it shall remain nameless, but let's just say it's a three-letter uh, acronym <laughs> and they deal with food. Okay. Does it, does it um, rhyme with LIFT? <laughs> <laughs> um, saying 
it was a good message, right? And it's like, like, should we put something out uh, because of all these listeria outbreaks? And I'm like, well, let's just look at what you sent me, right? And it's like, no, there's not really any, or there might've been one that was an outbreak and the others are recalls. And this is, I think, something that people, and we'll, we'll even make them, we've even made the mistake on this podcast, yep. I think. When we're talking about recalls, we say outbreaks. When we're talking about outbreaks, we say recalls because very often, so let's, let's just lay, lay it out, right? Like you could have a recall where there's no outbreak, which is the situation that we see here with these with these give or give or go muffins, right? Um, you could have an outbreak, but no recall because the outbreak is over by the time you figure it out. Or you could have an outbreak and a recall, which is you know which is why I think it's synonymous in people's minds. But it's those are t- completely separate things, and they don't always they don't have they for sure don't happen at the same time, right? In the same time frame, and there's implications there. And and certainly it does say in the FDA information that there, there's no illnesses associated with the product, but but it's a it's not the way that I would message it, but again, I mean, FDA, I mean, theoretically, hopefully FDA knows what they're doing, but again, yeah, like he said, man, if we ran the public health world, we might message it differently. Yeah. Well, and I want to point out that FDA doesn't edit these, right? Like the, so, so I, this is oh, not, yeah, you're right. This is verbatim from the company. Yeah, 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 you're right. And that's not there. And in fact says right at the start, right at the top of the page, when a company announces a recall, market withdrawal or safety alert, the FDA posts the company's announcement as a public service. FDA does not endorse the product or the company. And I would highlight they also don't edit this, right? They put it out there to magnify yeah. the message. Yeah. And, and that for for better or for worse. And I think that's something that we in previous um, situations, we've been someone, you know, multiple people from FDA have reached out to remind us of that. Um, and I well, think that's they important. Say that. How, how much you could put a little bit more text in that red box at the yeah. top, maybe even make it bold and say, this is verbatim from the company. We have not edited this information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway. But yeah, so this, I don't think this qualifies for our ongoing segment of um, FDA, CDC, <laughs> B+. plus. <laughs> Which, Michelle, this is your uh, first no. version of this, but this is where we uh, just evaluate public health messages from uh, from agencies. This one doesn't count. This is uh, give and go CDC, FDA, B, C, plus, D. <laughs> Right. And and I, I would have to imagine that this was written by Giving Go's legal team. Yeah, lawyers, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, the behind the scenes kind of kind of piece on this. That's one of the challenges we have. And I so I'll put a plug in because this is one of the things that, that we get to do on, on this podcast. I was part of a um a group um that was spearheaded by Stop Foodborne Illness, the advocacy um, organization for foodborne illness victims to to bring together a whole bunch of folks in the food safety space, largely with academia and um, uh, food industry to really look at problems with the recall system holistically, because no one really owns recalls, right? Like, like FDA owns portions of recalls, state and local um, public health uh, and and uh, uh, health departments and departments of agriculture own parts of recalls. The industry owns parts of recalls. The USDA, FSIS owns parts of recalls. But, but no one really looks at it from preventing recalls all the way through to how do we best communicate um, recalls uh, to uh, to consumers and what is it that we want to do? 
and so we, you know, this this group, and I, I um, chaired this with Mitzi Baum, who's um, the CEO of Stop Foodborne Illness. We put together um, sort of a, a plan on things that people need to look at um, in this uh, in this area, and and so and this is one of them, right? Like that, Michelle, you kind of you kind of nailed it with your comment. There isn't a whole lot of food safety risk communication guidance that goes to to companies about what should you put into a recall notice. And, um, and many, many companies may be doing it for the very first time. Absolutely. Most are. Doing it. And yeah. Then, and yeah. And then, and, and so there is no, the FDA and C and USDA do not have advice on how to write these things. I, I mean, so, so CD or um, FSIS manages it. Right, so the difference between FSIS and, and FDA is, if you look at an FDA re, or an FSIS recall, they wrote it. There, really? yes, there. So, so we in fact have the two. You know, our two agencies approach this extremely dif- differently. Well, We're, as as they approach most things, everything. extremely differently right. because of differences in history and culture and 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 resources, etc. Yeah, so. So that's like part part of a, you know a challenge here. Um, there is some guidance about recalls and recall notices. I'd say it's outdated and it's not written from the and and I, I won't just say the I'm not the only person who says this. A friend of friend of ours, Don uh, Bill Hallman, uh, a fantastic uh, uh, communications researcher um, from Rutgers. Also was part of this this panel this this working group that um, that addressed this issue. There, we we collectively would would say that that recalls are not written from a place of risk communication. We don't. There's mm. not a collective. It really, it it even comes down to there's not a, a a collective agreement on what we want consumers to do, <laughs> right? Wow. Like like we have a public duty to communicate this stuff, but what is it that we really want them to do? And I think it, you know, my, my comments on this one is, well, we have different audiences. What do we want someone, what do we want a pregnant individual to do? What do we want someone who's an institutional food service to do? What do we want someone who just happened to have purchased this product has in their home, but it's not high risk for listeria. What do we want them to do? Those are three different wants, right? Like there are three different objectives. And unless you, unless you're clear on what you want them to do, how are you going to know if you're effective, right? Well, the, we were we had an effective recall because um, we put a notice on the internet, right? I right. mean, that's the criteria for success is you 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 post it, right? Uh, and then I guess I guess the companies may monitor the recalled product, they may control it, they may do something with it, or they may not. I mean, yeah. So how do you how do you even know? Like you could you don't even really I mean you could look you could look at it and say well this is a good message this is a bad message right but but by what by what criterion what 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 is the you know what what how do you, how are you judging it and I would say to your point Ben it's you're judging it based on whether it achieved what you wanted it to achieve in terms of action right 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 and and I you know that's not a in in our outside of experience from this working group, that's not something that FDA and FSIS have traditionally looked at, right? Like they've, they've met the, their, their objective is get information out and and let people take the, take that information, but providing guidance and, and helping the industry craft these messages or, um, following up to see if their messages are effective, just been outside of the scope of what what the system does as it relates to recalls. 
Um, and, and so, yeah. So anyway, I, I think that this, there's a lot of work to, to do in this area and like, you know, Michelle, APHL is part of this, right? The food industry is part of this. The epidemiologists is part are part of this. The regulating agencies are part of this. The academics are part of this. This is a big sandbox for us to all play in. And, and no one's really taken this as here's how we drive this going forward. So, so stop, you know, with, you know, as part of this, this big team, that was one of the things that we wanted to highlight is someone needs to drive this. Someone needs to own this to move, move this forward. And so, so anyway, I was, I was excited that that, um, that, that came out and it also certainly played into, um, you know, some of the stuff that I want, that we wanted to talk about today. So. Yeah, this, I, I, this, hearing the two of you kind of talk this through, it's very, it's very interesting. And it's not, you know, we don't, because APHL is so focused on the laboratory testing side, um, which is nuanced in its own way. Um, I don't, I don't often consider, uh, you know, at the point of recall and what those messages um, are and where the gaps are. And I, I honestly, so much of what, of the points that you've made span across, um, you know, all sorts of infectious disease risk and, you know, um, uh, so it's interesting to, uh, to consider all of it. Yeah. And, and I, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't expect that, that, that you or, or APHL sees like, Hey, we need to drive this issue. No, like, no, yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. But, but yeah. certainly you're part of the, of the world that contributes to, our understanding of recalls and, and risk. And, and, and I, you know, the, 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 the how we have addressed recalls in the U S has evolved in patchwork, right? Like, you know, no one sort of sat back and say, what's the best system for us to do this. And what's been really interesting through this working group process, and I'll, I'll sort of call out Bill Hallman in this bill, Bill really highlighted that this conversation is happening outside of the U S as well. But, Outside entities look to the U.S. for what's the best way to do this. And if the U.S. hasn't figured this out, there's a lot of pause to, to try to do it differently. And I think like PulseNet, just bringing it back to APHL and, 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 and CDC and PulseNet, PulseNet is a great example. PulseNet didn't exist in, in other places throughout the world until it was created here. And then, you know, there, there's lots of different European approaches, Asian approaches, um, African approaches to, to public health laboratory sharing that is really enhanced, uh, you know, infectious disease and, you know, food safety in, in those areas. But it was, it really was because of the focus that, that happened here in, in, in the U S. And so I kind of see the same thing for, for recalls. It's like, we, you know, we, we have the ability to, to sort of harness this, and and drive it, but not just affect what's happening here in within our borders, but but elsewhere. Um, and yeah, so so it's it, it was it, it's really um, I think it's really exciting to to be hopefully be part of that change, but it's also overwhelming because no one group really owns this. It's about coordinating this network, and and many of the. F- Many of the individuals and organizations within this network might not even realize that they're in the network. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the, the company who's been told for the very first time uh, that they need to do a recall. Yeah. Right. 
And I, I, I just want to come back to the 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 uh, the, the give and go um, message to say it was probably written by a lawyer, not a scientist, because they have they have properly italicized. Um, all of the the company name and the names of all the products, but they have failed to properly italicize listeria moxitogenes. So probably not a lawyer. It's true. It's true. Um, so, so Michelle, just uh, you know, we've been we've been chatting for a couple hours. We we usually kind of kind of target about this time frame to to sort of wind down the show. Um, so what, what, and, and again, if it's in the show, it's in the show. So this is, uh, this is how we, we kind of, kind of roll. Um, you, you know, I, thanks. First of all, thanks for reaching out to us on, on Twitter. Um, oh, of course. And interacting with us. Um, and, and secondly, just thanks for being available and willing to, for, to, to join us and, um, and, and provide your perspective and, and, you know, Again, it's you know we Don and I like to talk and it's and we like to rant, but um, you didn't done a fantastic job um, being able to uh, <laughs> deal with our just extra words and and rants. Um, and you know, I just I just wanted to thank you for 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 being you know part of our our show today. Um, it, I really d- appreciate uh, I really appreciate you guys having me here. Yeah, it's fun. We'd love cool. to we'd love Wonderful. to have you back. Yeah. Dom, was there anything else that we wanted to talk about today? I know there's there's feedback and stuff. Oh, there's a can... lot of stuff that uh, w- w- is all going to be shelved for the next show yeah. because I think it was really important that we get Michelle on and talk to her while the 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 toilet plume was still in the air, it's fresh, as they say. Fresh toilet plume. <laughs> yeah. Um, I yeah. will still be closing my toilet lid. And as you should. Yes. As you should. Yeah. I'm and not we- going to tell you what to do, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's a risk management decision. Um, yeah. yeah. Literally could not be easier. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> when, when's the first episode coming out? <laughs> We'd be happy to be on the canonical first episode of literally could not be easier. <laughs> yeah. But, and there'll be, I feel like they're going to be, some of it's going to be really short. Right, like use a thermometer. Literally, could not be easier. Yeah, Next yeah that's show. right. Yeah, I yeah. The, the the engineer, probably engineer or computer programmer, who wrote in to risky or not to say, you guys really should publish how you make your decisions. I'm like, well, if if I wrote a computer program, then you wouldn't need the podcast. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Then we wouldn't get to to you know talk about it and uh, get into every unnecessary detail forever. Exactly. And what fun is that? There's yeah, there, there, you know, there's someone out there that wants to hear all these details. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Based on t-shirt sales. I want to say several someone's. Yeah. (laughs) At least 50. um, Someone's out there. So let me, let me just let, you know, that is what I would like to say. So if you, we're not going to have these t-shirts on sale forever. um, uh, But uh, so, so get your T-shirt now. Uh, I'll I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to Cotton Bureau where you can get our Food Safety Talk T-shirts. So uh, they're very fashionable. I'm wearing mine today, and so comfortable. Get the Tri Blend. I highly recommend the Tri Blend. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go get one of those and wear it sort of passive aggressively during meetings. Nice. <laughs> well. Um, yeah, Michelle, I just, uh, I sent you a message. Go ahead and send us uh, your address. Um, I'd be happy to send you one. Oh, uh, thanks. No, no problem. Um, cool. I think that's a show, Don, uh, Michelle, again, thank you for, for joining us. This has just been a pleasure. Um, the, so, so many times, 
uh, people that we've met through the internet or through other mutual connections. We've, we've just had a, just a, a lovely conversation and, and this, you, you, you certainly, um, were, were part of that catalog of, of great conversations we've had on this show. So thanks. Thank again you. I really time. appreciate it. Cool. All right. Um, bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> That's kind of how we end it. Now Don and I like, oh, and Michelle left. So per, there you go. that was, there you go. Um, awesome. That was great. Yeah. That was, that was fun. Yeah. We'll get to another We can. I mean, we can schedule since we skipped a week. We, if you want to schedule another episode next week, um, we could do that too and get to feedback and stuff. Don. Oh yeah. That's, that's fine. Yeah. No problem. Oh yeah, no, it's fine. I, I did not notice any problems with Michelle's mic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm either. And I looked at call recorder a bunch of times and it looks like it was totally fine. So Yeah, I looked at I looked at call recorder at one point and I didn't see it, but that's just because the window is behind something. <laughs> cool. Um awesome. All right, um, let us uh, schedule another show. Sure. Oh, I also, I will not be going to CFP preparation um, version six, just so you know. That no. Starts in- uh, how many? Did, I, did you sit through the full two hours? I did. I did. But only, but only you're only going to do that once. Huh? I am Even only. It's been recommended that we go twice. I, I, I will. I recognize that recommendation. I've. <laughs> I have received that recommendation, Don. Yes, that is that is okay. correct. I, I will. Have you gone twice? No. You've also recognized that recommendation. Yes. Um, and I think poor poor uh, Veronica, I think went three times. I'm not sure why. I think Eric. I think a friend of the show Eric Moore went multiple times as well. Um, the, well exactly. Uh, my favorite part was when when I I. I when I, we started actually debating an issue that I have a lot to say on and I kept mm-hmm. saying, don't, don't mention this. I'm not jumping in on this. We are not actually voting on this. I will save this for the show. Oh, yes. I saw you texted me. That was yep. very, it was very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I just cannot get over. I'm not, it's not, I can get over. I can understand. It's like, there's for like, I like Robert's rules of order, but ultimately 
I want to like get stuff done. There are people, I think, who just want to just take out enough of the book to beat you, as they say. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's part of the game, right? There, the, like that is part. You is gotta, it? it? It is. is it? I. That is one okay. way to play uh, the game. That is one way. One, one. Yes. One way to play the game is for FDA to uh, uh, <laughs> conspire with the states to extract an issue. That's that's that's, that's the, another. That's the part of the game I really don't yeah, like. That's but another I, but way I to play the game. Part of the game. Yeah, that's another. These these are like um, oh, what did we I, we played a game recently in my family that had that, that the four of us, Oh, um, I'm going to tell you about a game that I started playing and then another game that, that is not something that, that anyway, there's a game, a board game called ticket to ride. Okay. And it's about trains okay, and cool. yeah. And it's about like, um, you, 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 you're building the, you're, you're building trains and, you're becoming a, a railway mogul all through the U.S. or Europe. We have two. We have two different versions mm-hmm. of this. Um, there are lots of ways to play it to mass points. Mm-hmm. And I noticed. I, I never really thought about games until I started listening to Do by Friday. Like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like like at all. And yeah. I noticed that there are even in my family, the four of us take four different approaches to playing this game that are huh. different strategies. Yep. Huh. And and so anyway, that's my CFP like analogy. Oh yeah, is that certainly there are different approaches and strategies to play the CFP game, and right. I learned that that is game theory. Like that it oh, is yeah, yeah, not yeah. that that's not just like a thing. Like that that right. is. Oh yeah, right, right. Yeah. So anyway, Ticket to Ride, great board game. Another game that I would like you to. So when. You know, you gave me um, uh, paper clips, expanding paper clips, exploding pa- paper clips. What was the paper clip game? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I remember. The, I don't remember what it was called, but uh, yeah. There, there was a paper clip game. Um, yes. I am now playing a game called Mini Motorways that was on Apple okay. Arcade. So I, we, because we, we subscribe to all the Apple thingies, we get mm-hmm. Apple Arcade for free. You mm-hmm. should, if you would look at mini motorways it might be one of those things that if you ever do get on a plane or looking to play games in those situations that you would enjoy i think because it is very it it is somewhat soothing in a way that um that expanding exploding paper clips is or whatever it is um but but it's you're you're given roadways and you're helping people commute to work and that, oh, cool! And traffic is universal paperclips. Universal paperclips, yes. Mini mo- motorways is it's it, there. There is more. There is lots of different strategies out there for this, but it, it's something that over on, on my first trip on a plane to go to IAFP, I was looking for a game to play, and Mini Motorways came up as something that was recommended, and I've enjoyed it. Um, and my family okay. is starting to get into it. So, cool. Um, but there are different strategies on how to handle, handle Mini Motorways. So check check it out. Okay. Um, and, uh, and you play with other people? No, you play individually. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Not, but Ticket to Ride, you play with other people. And people. Oh, Ticket to Ride. Yeah, That's the other one. Okay. Yeah. So both, I'm, Don, I'm heavily into transportation games right now. That's, I think that's what's, what's happening. Um, okay. So let us um, look uh, at times. So, 
do you want to do you want to try and record next week just to like get because we missed a week uh let's see what is next is next week cfp no no so that's the thing is i'd like to avoid cfp week if we could record yeah, for next sure. week um so so we could do well i'll give you some options tuesday mm-hmm. august 10th 10th after the council orientation and parliamentary procedures for cfp i have a get like i basically could do anything after noon noon okay so i i will miss that mandatory meeting uh, and i will watch the recording because i am teaching in a better process control ah. school so i how about if we do uh two o'clock on that day yep that would be fine two o'clock the august 10th august 10th perfect yep that is a go um and then we have risky or not tomorrow yes yep perfect that's a go that is confirmed um i think that's it i'm gonna i so i think i told you my strategy now is i schedule three hours for this so i can do all the edits yes in the three hours so i'm doing that right now nice Yep. Cool. All right. Cool. All right. I think that's a good, that's a show. Yeah. Cool. All yeah. right. So I have uh, done the show notes. I did not add these three games. I will add the games and then save the file again. Cool. And, uh, and then I'll rename stuff as I do and you should be good to go. Yep. Awesome. Thanks. All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.